You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Now it's time to enter, enter into a time of worship through the preaching of God's Word. So I invite you to join me in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1 and we will go down to verse 16 today. So Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16. Welcome once again. Thank you all for being here this morning uh, to join us as we worship. Let's get right into it. The Word of God says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And all God's people said, Father, thank you for the privilege that I have to divide your word and to to preach it, to proclaim it, to exhort your people to follow it and submit to it. What a great privilege it is. Just pray for myself in this moment, and I pray, God, that, that through the power of your Spirit, you would enable me to be the man who will rightly divide your word in this moment. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow me to preach in the power of your Spirit, and that I would rightly divide the word, but also very clearly and passionately and persuasively proclaim the truth of your gospel as well, that you are the God of our salvation. I pray all of these things in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. 
So uh, we have been going through, for those of you who might be uh, with us for the first time today, we have been going through, walking through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, section by section. I didn't just happen to choose to preach from this text today. This is just where we arrive now in our journey through the book of Ephesians. So with that said, I just want everyone to understand that without a doubt, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 marks a significant transition in the letter itself. For the first three chapters, uh, or the first three chapters were really filled with grand theological truths. As, as Paul explained these theological truths and the, the spiritual blessings that those of us who are in Christ by faith, that, that we have received by virtue of our status of being in Christ by faith. In those chapters, just by way of reminder, Paul taught us some things, some of these spiritual blessings that we have received. He mentioned redemption, how we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He mentioned reconciliation, how before we are in faith in Christ, before that we are actually separated from God, estranged from God. But through our faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought near to God. We are reconciled with Him. Redemption, reconciliation, election, grace, salvation. The Lord is our salvation. We, we just sang about that. Paul has taught us about that. He taught us about peace, how we were before faith in Christ. We were children of wrath. That's actually what he said in Ephesians chapter 2. But now because we are in Christ by faith, we now have peace with God. We're no longer children of disobedience or children of wrath. Paul also taught us that we have a new identity in Christ, this one new man, this body of Christ, a new holy temple in the Lord. Paul has taught us about that. Another focal point in the first three chapters has been love. Paul has mentioned love a whole lot. I think it's fair to say uh, that, that if I understand Paul correctly, so, some of what he's been stressing here is all of these wonderful spiritual blessings that we have received through faith in Christ, they really flow out of the love of Christ himself. In fact, Paul went so far as to say last week that our finite minds can't even begin to comprehend the, the depth of Christ's love. We, we can only begin to do it through the, the aid of the, the supernatural aid of the Holy Spirit. So th that's just kind of a, um, a summary of what Paul has taught in the first three chapters. He's really been all about what God has done for those of us who are in Christ. Now that he has explained all of that, the focus now turns to us. We can think of it this way. God has acted... Now it is time for his people to respond. We, we can think of the division of the letter of Ephesians this way. The first three chapters, this is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Second half of the letter, now it's time for his people to respond accordingly. So notice in your Bibles how he begins in verse 1. He says, I therefore, and the therefore is probably connecting back to everything that he has said so far in the first three chapters, those things that I just mentioned to you. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He's reminding his audience once again that he is in prison while he writes this letter. Take note of this word prisoner. I'll mention that again in a few minutes. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the word walk. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I, I pointed this out when we encountered this word twice before in chapter 2. I believe it was at the very beginning, the first half of chapter 2. I told you then that walk is a common metaphor in the Bible 
that describes the general conduct of one's life. And we're going to see this word again several more times in the second half of this letter. In fact, the next two chapters really are framed around this word walk. In, in verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul will say, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. In chapter 5, verse 2, Paul will say, walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, Paul will say, walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 15, Paul will say, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the, the rest of this book really is framed around this idea of what it means to, to walk worthy of the Lord. Suffice it to say, church, God cares about the conduct of our lives. Or another way to say it, what we do in response to God's love and his mercy and his grace and his salvation, what we do in response to that matters very much to God. Therefore, we must walk accordingly in response to his love and grace. Now, I'm going to share something with you that I have said before. You've sat under my preaching long enough now. Some of you have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating again, especially in this context. It fits right here. I have a fear, or maybe it's just kind of a general observation as I look back through church history. We'll just say it this way. I have a fear. I have a fear that for far too long, too many of us evangelical Christians, and that's a pretty big group, but my fear is that for far too long, we evangelical Christians have equated walking worthy of the Lord solely in terms of how we abstain from certain overt sinful behaviors and lifestyles that, that are common for people who exist outside the walls of this building. You've heard me say it before. It's the attitude of, I don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? Look at me, look at me, look at how self-righteous I am. We, we compare ourselves to our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, or whatever. Well, I don't, I'm not sinning like that guy. I'm not stepping out on my wife. I, I'm not a drunkard. You know, whatever it is, look at me, look at me. I don't drink custard or go with girls who do. Therefore, I am walking worthy of Christ. I, I fear that for far too long we have equated walking worthy of Christ in those terms without actually giving consideration to what it means to walk worthy in here, within the community, within the body of Christ itself. All of those things that I just mentioned to you are, are all well and good. But please understand that there is a whole other side of, of walking worthy, and it includes walking worthy of Christ in the community. Paul is going to get to the I don't drink, cuss, or chew crowd. He's going to get to that. In fact, he's going to kind of mention that next week. So come back and hear that message. But for, day, for today, the focus is walking worthy of our calling within the church. How we walk as brothers and sisters in Christ within the body of Christ, it matters very much to God. So he goes on to say in verse 2 now, all right, so how do we walk worthy within the community? He says, with all humility in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the very first thing we learn from this text today is this, to walk worthy of Christ is to walk in unity within the community. 
Now, I want you to notice something really interesting about unity here that Paul mentions. I want you to notice that unity is not something that we actually create. Look at the words and look at what Paul says. We are implored here to maintain a unity that already exists. It is the unity that is given to us by the Spirit. This no doubt goes back to the theological foundations that Paul has already explained to us early in the letter, how we are one in Christ Jesus, how we form this one new man through Christ, the third race. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the body of Christ, this new spiritual temple, the dwelling place for God. We didn't create that. God created that. And and when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God places us in this united body that he has created, the, the church itself. And if we are to walk worthy of his love, and if we are to walk worthy of his grace and of his salvation, then we must, quote, be eager to maintain this unity that we already have in the bond of peace. Think about that word eager for just a second. What do you think of when you think of that word eager? Here's, here's what comes to my mind. When I think of eager, I think of my children on Christmas Eve. They're eager on Christmas Eve to wake up the next day if they ever go to sleep in the first place. They are waiting with great anticipation and excitement. They, they just can't wait for Christmas morning to get there to open their presents. Eager. Beloved, in the very same way, Paul here commands us to be eager to maintain the unity that we have in Christ, and we must do it through the bond of peace. The word for bond comes from the very same root word for prisoner. Remember, Paul mentioned he was a prisoner for the Lord earlier. This word for bond comes from the very same root word. It means to bind as a prisoner would be bound to chains. And understand this, when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison, he's very likely chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not like he was in a prison with his own cell. He was probably under house arrest, and he was chained to another human being 24 hours, seven days a week. So just as Paul is bound to his guard by a chain, we therefore should be bound together in in unity through peace and love, and we should be eager to keep that bond. Let me ask you this question. Before you walked in here this morning, if you had to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 of eagerness to maintain this unity that we already have, if you had to rate yourself before you just heard what I told you on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate yourself? How eager are you to maintain the unity that we have through Christ? It's probably not something we think a lot about. It's probably not something that we just wake up every day and go, man, I am just really excited and I can't wait until I have an opportunity to maintain the unity that we have as Christians in the body of Christ. But I'm here to submit to you that on a scale of 1 to 10, it should be a 15. Right? Somebody say amen. This is what... The Bible is saying, but unfortunately, it's not always on our radar. We don't always think of it in these terms, but Paul is urging us. He says, you guys have got to do this. You've got to be eager to maintain this unity. Now, obviously, maintaining unity, it requires such things as humility, gentleness, 
patience and love. Humility is the idea of, of not thinking too highly of one's self. Obviously, it's the opposite of being prideful. Gentleness is a virtue that's very similar to humility. The word speaks of self-control and a tempered spirit. And then there's the word patience. I like this word. This might be one of my favorite Greek words, or at least it is today. All right, for right now, until we get to the next word, which is love. But for now, I really love this word. And this word can sometimes be translated as, as long-suffering. And I really love that word, long-suffering. What does that mean? Well, long-suffering is the ability to patiently and gently endure annoyances and difficulties over a long period of time. Now, think about it. You need long-suffering whenever you're living in community of any kind, whether it's a church community, whether it's a work community, whether it's a home community, because invariably somebody or someone is going to annoy you. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Let me tell them myself this morning. I, sometimes I get easily annoyed by things, like by people who just breathe really loudly. That just kind of annoys me. Like, do you have to breathe in and out like that? And do you have to make that noise when you breathe? Or, or really, the, the one thing that really gets me more than anything else is someone who chews their food really loudly in my ear. Like, really, do you, do you have to chew like that? And it, do you have to chew like that in my ear? That, that will annoy me. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm not so patient. My, my children can testify to that when it happens. So the, the point is, we really need this idea of long-suffering if we're going to live in unity in any kind of community, whether it's in the church, whether it's at home, whether it's in the workplace. And then there's the, that last one, there's the word love, and that, of course, is agape love, which we've seen this word many, more, many times already in our study of Ephesians. Agape love is a, de, a deliberate love that chooses to love even when it's very difficult to love, like when someone is chewing their, their food really loudly in your ear, I, I, have, I have to choose. I have to make a conscious decision to, to show agape love when long-suffering in that moment. And, and, and I don't always get it right. I don't. Again, my family can testify to this. And Paul understands this about us Christians in the church. Paul, yeah, okay, that's enough. Paul. Paul is a realist. He understands that there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's not. Because there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. If someone once said that church would be great if not for the people, including the pastor. And what's, what's really comical and kind of funny about that statement is, you know, the Greek word that's translated as church, I mean, it really carries the idea of people. The church is the people. This building's not the church. We're the church, the people. You know, so you can't have church without people, but we people, we are all imperfect, every single one of us. And so none of us gets this right 100% of the time. Paul understands this. God understands this. And that's why it's so important for us to be eager to wake up in the morning and go, man, I can't wait until I have an opportunity to maintain the unity that I already have with my brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who chew their food very loudly in my ear all the time and annoy me to no end. That's why this is so important. And beloved, please understand this, this works both ways. Because when it comes to being annoyed, 
within any kind of community, it's very easy to go, well, if that person wouldn't chew their food very loudly in my ear, then, you know, I'd be okay. It's all their fault that we don't actually have, have unity. Paul says, uh-uh, no. We all have a responsibility. For those who might have sandpaper personalities, I've used that illustration before a couple of times in our study of Ephesians, those who might just rub people the wrong way, if they recognize this about their personality, then they should be eager to adopt gentleness. They really should. For those who might be prone to, to pride, spiritual pride of some kind, once they understand that they are prone to pride, they should be eager to adopt humility in their lives. And conversely, those who might get their feathers ruffled by whatever annoyance it may be, they should be eager to adopt patience and long-suffering and love. My point is, we all have a responsibility to be eager to maintain the unity that we have through Christ, through the bond of peace. And as Paul goes on in the next three verses, he's going to remind us of the theological foundation of the shared unity that we have. It's not something that we can create. It's something that already exists. So notice in verse 4, and and if you want to, here's something interesting. Count the number of times you see the word one in these next three verses. So he says, there is one body and one spirit. We are all placed into the body of Christ by the same spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, we all share the same future hope of glory and exaltation through our shared faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Three more ones right there. We share the same Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. Via the same faith in Jesus Christ, to which we were all baptized into Christ. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. Now that we are in Christ and are no longer sons of disobedience, guess what? We all share God as our Father, one Father. Then he says, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you count the number of times the word one was found there? Did you count? Anybody count? Anybody have a number? Seven by my count, but it could be six. But seven's what I counted. Maybe I'm wrong. It's a lot. It doesn't really matter. The point is very, very simple. We are all one in Christ. Therefore, if we were to walk worthy of Him, then we must be eager to maintain this oneness, the unity that we have in Christ. I mentioned before that one of my, one of my fears is that we evangelicals have equated walking worthy of the Lord solely in terms of, you know, abstaining from certain sinful and overt lifestyles. And we think so long as we're doing, doing that, then we're, we're walking worthy of Christ. There's a reason why I fear that. There's a reason why I have that as an observation, because I've seen it. I've seen it lived out in, on, in more than one person. But, but one person in particular, I want to share a story with you. The person that I'm thinking of was the quintessential, I don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls who do, or in this case, guys who do. She was just, there's no other way to say it. She was very, very self-righteous. And she would let you know in a heartbeat all the things that she had never done before in her life to the glory of God. In fact, on on one occasion, I'll never forget it. And don't ask me why this came up because I have no idea. 
But on one occasion, a group of us were gathered together, and the topic of the lottery came up. And she said, before anyone could say anything, she wanted everyone to know, and she said very loudly and very, very proudly, the southern belle that she was, she said, I have never bought a lottery ticket in my life. Which is all well and good. Don't, <laughs> don't go out of this place today. Well, Pastor Walter said it's okay for me to go out and buy lottery tickets. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. My point is, this individual that I'm talking about here, hands down, without a doubt, the most divisive church person I've ever encountered in my life. Shamefully so. Sinfully so. I've been a Christian now for 17 years. Been a part of the church ever since. As a church member and as a pastor, I've encountered some very divisive people. But this individual actually takes the cake. And the divisiveness that she brought to that church, again, was very shameful and extremely sinful. But she would have you believe that she's walking worthy of Christ because she's never bought a lottery ticket in her life. Beloved, I would submit to you that she's not walking worthy of the Lord at all. At all. If you're not walking worthy of the Lord within the community, within the church, within the body of Christ, then you're not walking worthy of Him at all. At all. And I think that's a very fair statement. And it comes from my study of God's Word. So the first item that we learn here, church, is this. To walk worthy is to walk in unity within the community. The second item that we're going to learn here today is this. To walk worthy is to serve in the community. To serve in the community. Verse 7, Paul kind of shifts gears a little bit, but he'll come back to unity in a minute. But he says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we are indeed one in Christ, no question about that. But we are not all identical, are we? We're all different. God has gifted each and every single one of us in different ways. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Alina has the gift of gab. I don't have the gift of gab. She also has real spiritual gifts, like the gift of administration and the gift of hospitality. I'm not gifted in those areas. I have the spiritual gifts of exhortation and preaching and teaching and others. So we, we are all one in Christ. But we are not identical clones. God has gifted each and every one of us in different ways. Now he, now he says that, then he gets sidetracked a little bit, as is so often the case for Paul. And he says in verse 8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is actually a reference to Psalm 68. Go home later today and read the entirety of Psalm 68 if you want. Be good exercise for you. But the original psalm, Psalm 68, the psalm depicts God as a, a victorious king. He's gone out to battle. 
He's defeated his enemies, and he has, he's freed some captives who were held captive by the enemy, presumably. And so he's, he's freed the captives, he's defeated, he's conquered another king and his army, and then he, he receives gifts. In other words, he receives the spoils of war. That, that's actually the context of Psalm 68. But Paul takes the psalm and he, and he adapts it to Christ. He changes a little bit of, of the wording there to adapt it to Jesus' ascension, describing Jesus as a victorious king after the battle. Well, who are the host of captives who have been set free in this illustration? It would be, be you. It would be me. It would be the church. It would be the redeemed of all time. Remember, in Christ's victory over Satan, we, we have been set free from slavery to sin. The Bible says, somebody say Amen. We've been set free from the power of his dominion, and we've been transferred to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so, now Christ our king, he's won the battle, he's won the war, he's received the spoils of war, and what does he do with the spoils of war? He gives them to us, now, his people. And the spoils of war, in this case, are spiritual gifts. This is what Paul is saying. I know it's a little difficult. But this is exactly what, what he's getting at here. And then he gives us this parenthetical statement in verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Can I just remind you of something again? Can I just remind you of something? Paul is extremely difficult to unwind sometimes. Like, Paul, what are, you, like what, are, what are you talking about here? Uh, listen, the one who descended is Jesus Christ. He's talking about his descension in the, in the incarnation. Jesus, the God of heaven, the God of glory, he got up off of his throne in the glory and perfection of heaven. He took on human flesh and he descended to the earth in his incarnation by taking on human flesh. So the one who descended in the incarnation is the same one who has ascended and is now exalted over all things. That, that's what he's saying. And I just want to remind you, church, that Paul has said this before. This is another way of saying something he's already said before in our study of Ephesians. And I want to take you there. I want to remind you of something that I said then. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Paul said, in, in describing his ascension, and he, that's God the Father, put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but I mentioned this in my sermon in Ephesians 1, that what Paul is saying there in verse 22 is that he gave him as head over all things to the church. What he really means is for the good of the church. That Jesus has been ascended. He's, he's ruler over, over all things. He has all power. He's exalted on high. And God has placed him there for the good of the church. This will become important in just a few minutes. So via Christ's exaltation, he now sits in a place of complete power and authority of, over all things for the good of the church. Which, which means, beloved, he has the power to give such gifts to his people for the good of the church. Now, he's done with that little parenthetical statement. And now he goes to verse 11. Now he's going to describe for us Four specific gifted groups of people who are gifts to the church. Look at what he says in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, 
Each one of these groups that he mentions here, they all serve different functions in the early church. Paul has already mentioned the apostles and the prophets and how they they served as the foundation for the church. I don't have to go over that again. Here he mentions evangelists. Evangelists, of course, are, are gifted in proclaiming the gospel message. And in case you've never heard the gospel message before, the gospel message is that God is the God of our salvation. It's the message that says your sins can be forgiven. You can have the promise of everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ, believing in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That is an evangelist. An evangelist is gifted in proclaiming the gospel message. One commentator refers to evangelist as, get this, the obstetricians of the church. It's an interesting way to describe them, right? Because they are the ones who are gifted in bringing new births to the church. If you need to know what an obstetrician is, go home and Google it. I actually had to Google it just to make sure I knew what he was talking about. I I thought I knew, but I just wanted to make sure. Telling myself there. So, that is the evangelist. Now, Paul moves on and he mentions, notice in your Bibles, shepherds and teachers. Now, it's not readily apparent in our English translations, but Paul here is not talking about two different gifted groups of people here. He's talking about one. He's talking about teaching shepherds. He's talking about teaching pastors. He's talking about guys like me. That's what he's talking about. So if evangelists are obstetricians, then guess what? Teaching shepherds are pediatricians. What does a pediatrician do? Their job is to nurture the flock of God's people, prodding them along as as they grow and mature. And the primary way this is achieved is through the preaching of God's Word to the church. It It is not the only way, but it certainly is a matter of first importance. So, God has gifted the church. Paul has said in verse 11, with these four specific groups of people, right, as good gifts to the church. And as he goes on, he's going to explain there's a purpose for which God has given the church these good gifts. Verse 12, to equip the saints for work, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a whole lot that Paul just said right there. And I don't have time to unpack all of it. But I want to back up to verse 12 because that's very important. Where he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. One commentator said that verse 12 provides a very important foundation for the relationship between laity and pastors. What's the relationship between laity and pastors? In my experience, many people have many different ideas and views and understanding of the church and understanding of the pastor and his role and how the people of the church function within all of that. There are a lot of competing ideas out there in the culture in which we live. One of the most dominant views is this. A lot of people in our consumer-driven culture view the church kind of like a, a cruise ship. They have a, a cruise ship mentality. They, they see the church as something that, that offers Christian luxuries for the whole family, sports, entertainment, 
child care services, that sort of thing. It's the idea of, well, well, what can this church do for me? What can this church offer me and my family that other churches around doesn't, cannot offer? It's that kind of mentality. And it's pervasive in our Western society, consumer-driven culture. In this model, the pastor's kind of like a cruise director. His job is to provide entertainment for the paying customers. And it's real. And it's very, very pervasive. I had a family once. You know, I've got that coffee mug at home that says, watch out or you might end up in a sermon sometime. It's true. I had a family... They left our church one time, not this church. And on their way out, they paid me the ultimate compliment. Only they didn't intend it as a compliment. But I took it very much as a compliment. And they said, and I quote, Walter, speaking of my ministry, too much Bible, not enough fun. Too much Bible, not enough fun. We're going on down to the other church that offers fun. Beloved, the church is not an entertainment venue. We're not. And that's why we'll never have fog machines up here and dark lights in here. And everybody said amen. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily. I'm just saying. We are not an entertainment venue. And I am not a cruise director or a bus driver. That's not who I am. That's not how the Bible describes my role. I am a a teaching shepherd whose responsibility is to equip the saints for ministry through the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Now, this also means then that you have a responsibility. This means that you are not paying customers on a cruise ship or a tour bus. You're not just along for the ride. God has gifted every single one of us to serve within the ministry of the church. For the purpose of building up the church. And Paul's not talking about building up in numbers. That's another problem we've had in our Western church culture. We have focused on bringing people into the seats rather than building up the people who are already in the seats. So that as they grow and mature, then they would, they would replicate themselves. It's not about drawing a crowd. It's about growing up spiritually into spiritual maturity. So according to Paul, the church grows spiritually and in unity when every member of the body is serving as God intends for them to serve. That's what he's saying. You can disagree with me all you want, but you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God's Word. I always like to say it this way. Church is like anything else in life. The more you put into it, the more you will get out of it. I think that's absolutely true. John F. Kennedy said, ask not what you could do for your country, uh, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, for your church, which is your country. It's the kingdom of Christ. Every membership class I ever have, I always give the people who take the class, I always give them spiritual gift assessment. Some of you took that class. You've got those spiritual gift assessments. I give that for a reason. Because God has gifted every single one of us with different gifts. We're not all gifted the same way. We're not. We're unique individuals within the community, right? So God gives us these gifts and he intends for us to use them. 
I'm here today because my pastor, once upon a time, he sat me down. He said, Walter, you've got to take the spiritual gift assessment. I said, I'm not taking a test. I don't come to church for a test. He says, it's not a test. Very fine. I sat down and I did it. And I discovered that God had gifted me to preach, to teach. And, and I'm only here today because of that, in a real sense, anyway. If you've never taken a spiritual gifts assessment, come see me after class. I'll get you one. You need to discover, you need to discover what your gifts are so you can find the right place to serve in the church. Now, verse 14, I'm running way out of time. So Paul, guess what? He comes out of left field again. It's not readily apparent how it fits. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know what he's picturing here? He's picturing here someone who is easily duped by false teachers. The Kenneth Copelands and the Joel Osteens of the world. There were false teachers in Paul's day, just as there are false teachers in our day. And, and Paul seems to suggest here that one way to avoid them is by serving in the church. That's what he's getting at. It's sitting under the preaching of the teaching shepherd of the church and by walking in unity with one another. He says one way you can, you can protect yourself against those false teachers is doing those three things right there. Then he's going to close it up here in verse 15. I'm almost done. I'm going as fast as I can. Rather, speaking the truth in love, which Interestingly, in the Greek, it's literally truthing in love. Like, how do you truth in love? Truth isn't just something you, you, you speak. It's something you do. It's, it's a way of life. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Then he says, when each part is working properly... If you like to mark your Bible or take notes, underline that. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I also use this illustration in every membership class I have when I talk about the importance of serving in the church. We go over this, go, hey, if you're going to be a part of our church... You know, we, we, kind of, we expect you to serve in some way. Find a place to serve. And then, I, and then I explain it this way. Because Paul explains it this way with the, the illustration of the body. Before I was a pastor, I was a carpenter. Every day I was, I was working with power tools that had the ability and the power to reach out and touch you in not a very good way. And every day, I, you know, I'd have my fingers very close to that saw blade. It's just some pieces of wood were so small, you had no choice. You had to do it. Like every day, I was an atheist, but I was praying anyway. There's, an, you know, there's no atheist in foxhole. So you have your finger really close to that saw blade. And that, it can cut that whole thing off very quickly. Thankfully, I never lost a digit. Never did. But imagine for a minute if I did. Imagine if that saw cut off just a, a little portion of my index finger right here. And think about, first of all, what would happen to that, that part of the index finger that had been cut off from my body? What would happen to it? It would wither away and die because it's been cut off from its source of life. But then think about the rest of the body. Even something small is just a little part of a, a finger can then affect the overall health of the rest of the body. If, if I miss just this little portion of this finger right here, my body will never again function 100% the way that God intends 
my body to function. The same is true when it comes to the body of Christ and each member of the body, myself included, and all of you who are in Christ by faith. He says that the church will grow up in maturity and in unity when each part is working properly. So church, serving in the church, I believe, is absolutely essential to your spiritual health as an individual. If, if, you're, if you're not serving in the church, then you're, you're like the finger that's been cut off from the source of life. You really are. But it's also essential to the overall health of the church, the body of Christ. Christ has gifted each and every one of us in unique ways to serve in the church and to do so for the good of the church. And if it's good for the church, if it's good for the body, then it's good for you as well as a member of the body. So let me leave you with with two challenges very, very quickly. Number one, just by way of reminder, if you're not already doing so, be eager to maintain unity in the community. Wake up with an eagerness every single day. On a scale of 1 to 10, make it a 15. Oh, Lord, let me be excited to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. We can't create unity. We don't. We already have unity, a shared faith in Christ. Now we are called to maintain that, so be eager for that. And then secondly, if you're not already doing so, be eager to serve in the community in some way, somehow, some shape or form. We can always use more people serving around here. And don't, don't assume. Some people assume, well, you know, I'm really kind of small and insignificant. God hasn't really gifted me in, in any great way. You know, they kind of think of themselves as like, a, you know, just a little nub of a finger. That little nub of the finger is important for the rest of the body. Okay? So if you think that about yourself, which probably isn't true anyway, but if you think that about yourself, you understand you're still very, very, very important. So find a way to serve. When we walk in unity and when we walk in service to the church, then we begin to walk worthy of the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your, your word. Thank you for the opportunity to stand here and preach it this morning. And I, I pray that, that we would all be challenged in some way uh, through the preaching of your word today. And I pray that that we would all be eager to maintain the unity that we have in Christ, that we would all be eager to find ways of of serving the body of Christ. I pray that we would all be eager to to walk worthy of you in all that we are and all that we do. Not just beyond the walls of this building, not just in who we are the rest of the week, that we would also seek to walk worthy of you within the community itself. All of these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Church, I invite you you to stand. We're going to sing one more song. I believe it's called For the Cause. For the cause of the kingdom. Everything that we do, the reason why God wants us to walk worthy of Him, it's for the cause of the kingdom. Walking worthy is for the, the cause of the kingdom. For the advancement of the gospel.
If God is speaking to you in some way through the message this morning, I would invite you to respond some way, somehow. You can do it right where you are. You can come down here. You can come forward. You can pray at this altar here. I'd be happy to pray with you as well. Maybe there's someone here who's never received the Lord as their salvation through faith in the gospel. If you want to receive that this morning, I would be, I would be overjoyed uh, to, to be with you at the beginning of that journey. Whatever's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.